Cherry Hill Volvo, we have absolutely incredible offers and a plethora of both new and certified Volvos from which to choose. We are eager to offer amazingly competitive prices, plus an additional $1,000 Costco discount on all new Cherry Hill Volvos. When leasing or purchasing a new or certified Cherry Hill Volvo, you become a valued part of our team. Join Cherry Hill Volvo for the pricing and attention you deserve. I am Judith Krepnick, president of Cherry Hill Volvo. Generation of talk. Now, this is the drive at 5. 30 minutes of non stop talk with Rich Zioli. NBC slams Trump because he says he doesn't care if his voters die. That's right. It's so cold in Iowa, they could die. And Trump said, come out regardless, even if you die. I still want your vote. Welcome to the show. Glad you're here. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. That's true. Uh, NBC News slamming Donald Trump over the fact that he said, come out and vote. Not even a joke, folks. No jokes. Uh, It is the Iowa caucus. We are watching the uh, eve of the Iowa caucus tonight. I'll give you some more thoughts on that as the show goes on. But basically, I mean, the bottom line is this. I think you and I both know uh, who wins because of the Doug Burgum endorsement. It's Donald Trump. The only question is, how does DeSantis do? That's really what I'm more interested in tonight. It's it's that. Um, Does Trump break 50%? Probably. Yeah. I mean, it's looking like it in Iowa. Um, But whether or not people die because it's so cold out or not, and the networks are all freaking out about that, uh, Trump supporters are incredibly loyal. That's the bottom line. They are very, very loyal. And if you are a, um, a Donald Trump supporter, you're going to get out there. If you're a DeSantis supporter and you know your guy is not looking so hot, it's kind of cold. I don't know. If you're a Nikki Haley supporter and you really, really hate Trump's guts, you might get out there. But um, Iowa is going to be a strong night for him. And then all eyes turn to New Hampshire. But the only question is, will we be talking about Ron DeSantis heading into New Hampshire? That's the only question I'm watching for tonight. It's that. And like I said, and I know that there are DeSantis supporters that listen to the show. I have nothing against the guy. I like him. I do. I like him a lot. I think he's a very talented governor. I think he's probably one of, if not the best governor in the country. And I told you back in, I don't know, April, whenever he got in the race and did that awful Twitter spaces announcement, I was not going to um, get into battles over him and Trump. I encourage you not to. Because unless you lived in Iowa or New Hampshire, it wasn't relevant yet. And I also said, you know, if if DeSantis is still in the race by the time of the Pennsylvania primary and I need to endorse somebody, I'll, I'll consider doing so. But otherwise, since my show is not on in New Hampshire and it's not on in Iowa, let's see if he even makes it there before we all start killing each other. And remember, I went through a very divisive primary, we all did in 2016, a divisive primary that I was begging people in the general election, please come back. A lot of Ted Cruz supporters, you know, you you cannot let Hillary Clinton win. You can't let her win because then she'll get to appoint justices to the Supreme Court, and we will be talking about the Hillary Clinton court. And uh, that would be a disaster. It would, it would have been a disaster for our country, no question about it. But there, uh, pr- primaries cause a lot of hard feelings. They do. They it, it's, a, it's an internal family fight, and they cause a lot of hard feelings, and these feelings sometimes take a long time to go away. So I always said, I want to make sure that I can bring people back together. But we don't know how DeSantis is going to play on the national stage. 
just because you win your state by 20 points in re-election. It was outstanding. I mean, his, his, his re-election campaign was phenomenal. He won Miami-Dade County, flipped, flipped school board elections red. I mean, he crushed it. It was great. But that doesn't mean it's going to translate on the national level. We saw that with Scott Walker. Scott Walker's, the ability that Scott Walker had in Wisconsin to take on the unions, and I thought he was a rock star, and I thought heading into 2016, he was going to be a real contender, and not so much. So you have to be mindful of the fact that there's a difference between how you play on the state level and play on the national level. And I also think you have to be mindful of the fact that the Trump effect is just the Trump effect. You know, if Trump was not in the race right now, I think DeSantis would absolutely, without question, be winning Iowa tonight. He would have the support of Trump's voters, and that's the way it's going to be. Uh, that's the way it would be. I mean, that's what it would be. So that's not how it's going to work, though, because of Trump. Trump's in the race, and DeSantis will not get there. And now, my opinion, he needs to save his face for 2028 and do everything he possibly can to be the choice of Trump voters in 2028 if that pathway is there, because it could be taken by somebody else by then. Who knows? But you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. And I know that those are cliches, and I know that they're probably Yogi Bearisms, but in politics, it's very true. We have no idea what the world is going to look like in four years. But you have to make your political calculations based on what you do know, not what you don't. So now, if I'm on Team DeSantis, I'm sitting, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, all right, we can easily, Nikki Haley is setting this up in a way where we can easily win back the love of MAGA, and we can easily have them, ha- have, have the governor speak at the convention, and maybe give the nominating speech, maybe even give the nominating speech for Donald Trump at the Republican National Convention, and um have every Trump supporter believe that he was crucial in getting Nikki Haley to, 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 to not be the nominee as the establishment was working to put her in there. That's what I'm thinking if I'm on his team. And I'm not, I'm not on anybody's team, but I'm saying that's what I would be thinking if I was there. How do I, my goal would be at this point, since I was not going to, it's going to be Trump, then Haley, then DeSantis by conventional wisdom. Now, obviously, if DeSantis pulls off a miracle tonight, Well, that changes things, but assuming that it goes the way it looks like it's going to go, if I'm close to him, I'm I'm putting my hope in the idea that he gets to give the nominating speech for Trump at the Republican National Convention. But in order to do that, you got to be in a position that you help him. Because as much as Doug Burgum's coveted endorsement is gracious and Trump appreciates it, let's face it, Doug Burgum doesn't bring much to the table. But DeSantis does. He has a lot of support. And he has a lot of people who will happily switch over to Trump if it's not him. Because all the people that were backing him, the never-Trumpers that are backing him, the Larry Hogan's of the world, and they're all backing Haley. You know, the Chris Christie's, the Larry Hogan's, all those no-labels no uh, rhinos, they're all backing Haley now. So th- that, that, those people left the DeSantis station a long time ago. And he's polling in single digits in New Hampshire, and it doesn't look good after New Hampshire either. It doesn't look good in South Carolina. But what you could do if you're him is you could help Trump win in, in New Hampshire and then help Trump win in her home state of South Carolina. And then be such a part of this that at the convention, you come out, the night before and give the nominating speech. I guess that would be a Wednesday night.
probably. You come out Wednesday night primetime and you give the speech to nominate Donald Trump. And unlike the 2020 convention where Chris Christie nominated Mitt, Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney, you actually don't make it all about yourself, but you do set the stage for yourself for four years from now. Because regardless of who wins this race, whether it's Trump or Biden, and regardless of the fact that we've been told by the corporate media that Trump will never leave the White House, one of them will be president most likely, although I'm, I, I, like I said, I still would not be surprised if they switch out Biden, but let's assume for the moment that they don't. They are both then constitutionally barred from running for a third term. So at that point, it's an open seat. 2028 is an open seat. And that's all I'm thinking about at this point. If I'm DeSantis's guy, if I'm DeSantis's guy, for DeSantis, he may not be thinking that. He may not be there yet, but he's got to get there very, very quickly. Uh, all right, 855-839-1210 is the number if you want to weigh in. A couple other things that I'm watching over here. The question of is ESG already over? Environmental, social, and governance. There's a great piece at Reason.com by Russ Green about this. And you know what ESG is, right? It's this idea that companies now will decide that every brand should have a social or environmental purpose. And recently, a Financial Times headline announced that Unilever, Unilever's new chief says corporate purpose can be an unwelcome distraction. Unilever, by the way, is the global conglomerate that bought the brand Ben & Jerry's, the uh, terrible ice cream that is all about social causes. Their ice cream is loaded with crap, like liquid sugar. It's awful. Ugh. Anyway, um, a lot of people think Ben and Jerry's is, is uh, you know, it's like two hippies in a gas station in Vermont. No, they're, they're owned by Unilever, global food conglomerate. I think they also make soap. Soap tastes better than some of the Ben and Jerry's flavors, by the way, for the record. Ben and Jerry's, of course, is also on the free Mumia bandwagon, among other things. But anyway, the new CEO, Hein Schumacher, went on to explain that he rejected the idea that every brand should have a social or environmental purpose. He intended, he said, to build a performance culture and said. Now, why is that newsworthy, you might ask? Why is that newsworthy? Because the sum, the change is summed up by three letters of corporate nonsense, ESG. The initials stand for environmental, social, and governance factors, and the term dates back two decades. Early ESG documents, such as the 2004 report, Who Cares Wins?, which was produced under the auspices of the United Nations, suggests an effort to globally coordinate private and public sector activity toward a shared set of social objectives. Now, this was a departure from previous efforts at injecting political and moral values into business. You know, like corporate social responsibility, for example, socially responsible investing, impact investing, that it actually now pointed to a future of uniform environmental, social, and governance standards enforced by and encouraged by governments around the world. And the rise of ESG has further blurred the lines between the government and the corporate world. Under this environmental, social, governance idea, the government is actually called to advance goals in the private sector, and the private sector is there to help the government's policies. But this is not a public-private partnership in the sense that you think about it where 
you know, private money is used and the government funds that money or there's no, no, this is where the government says, this is what we perceive to be as environmental, social and governance. And you in corporate America must then follow suit and the corporate America, because they don't want to be punished by government, winds up doing those things. And they realize that it causes them to lose money. Think Target with tucking bathing suits, Bud Light with Dylan Mulvaney, um, and on and on it goes. Unilever is an interesting company, though. They are a microcosm of this. It's a British company, packaged uh, consumer goods. They own several brands, Ben & Jerry's, Dove, Magnum. It's prided itself on its ESG credentials, particularly under Paul Pullman, who was the CEO for 10 years. Under his leadership, the company made a series of corporate commitments to environmental and social causes. It supported sustainable agriculture at the World Economic Forum. Yes, the WEF. What is sustainable agriculture? Sustainable agriculture basically means eating bugs and that sort of thing. It helped create the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It made a stand to hashtag unstereotype the way men and women are portrayed in marketing. That's why if you've noticed, Dove Soap and some of their other products will either use very, very large people or sometimes men who are... No, no. Well, transgender men. So that's bi- biological. Men, I, well, you know, you know, the transgender. Anyway, um, to shave and whatnot. Well, it's now common for brands to advertise their commitments to such causes. Unilever took a lead in this. They took the lead in incorporating purpose into virtually everything that they did. The CEO actually called on his fellow CEOs to create value for a wider group of stakeholders. And it doesn't mean stakeholders as in people that actually own shares of the company. No, 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 you silly. And he said CEOs must call on the government and demand more efforts to fight climate change. And at first... The Unilever CEO's ideas worked. In his decade atop the company, Unilever's stock price rose by about 150%, well ahead of uh, the average. But then something happened. Toward the end of his term, signs of trouble appeared. Kraft Heinz, a firm closely associated with Warren Buffett and his holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, made a bid for control of Unilever in 2017. The company rejected the offer. The event carried symbolic meaning. Warren Buffett has had a long history of favoring profits over purpose. (laughs) In the fallout, investors increasingly put pressure on Unilever to cut bureaucratic overhead. After Pullman left the company in 2019, his replacement eagerly picked up the ESG mantle. They put out a blog post at the time. They said, no trade-off between purpose and performance. And then a backlash began in 2022. Uh, this guy, this uh, the, the CEO in the meantime, this guy, uh, Jopi, went to the Clinton Global Initiative, another secret evil globalist cabal, and declared that Unilever will not back down on the agenda despite these populist accusations. The agenda, of course, being environment, social governance. Indeed, the populace did not prompt Unilever to back down. Unilever is a British company. The British love this stuff, virtue signaling and whatnot. One investor ridiculed Unilever's virtue signaling, calling on the company to focus on fundamentals. Why did Hellman's mayonnaise need a purpose? It's freaking mayo. 
Isn't the purpose already as a condiment? And by the way, and you may you may disagree with me on this point. It's okay, I don't mind. I believe mayo is an outstanding condiment for a burger. Prove me wrong. I do too. Thank you, Henry. And French fries as well. Prove me wrong. I'm not British, so I don't... Well, it's actually Pulp Fiction where he talks about going to uh, Amsterdam. Is that what it is? Yeah. And they drown him in those things. Yeah. Mayo. But you like mayo on a burger. Smart man. I do. I do. See? Smart man, Henry. It's why we keep you around. Maybe we'll make a mayonnaise pie and shove that into Santa's face. <laughs> now that'd be good. I like that. I like the idea. Now that's something right there. <laughs> Within months of the promise not to back down, the CEO announced he was stepping down. <laughs> so then uh, the investors got together and said, why don't we think about making money and stop thinking about ESG because it's a freaking distraction? So the new CEO has good reasons for a change in course. In the United States, for example, a poll conducted by Todd Rose at Populous suggests, as Axios puts it, an astonishing four times as many Democrats say CEOs should take a public stand on social issues. Gallup has found that support for large corporations plummeted among Republican voters during the same period that businesses most loudly proclaimed their ESG commitments. It's not hard to see, right? I mean, you go to Target and you see tucking bathing suits. That's so that little boys can hide their boy parts. You see rainbow onesies. You see Bud Light with Dylan Mulvaney. You see all these things with your own eyes. And a lot of Democrats on the left cheer these things. But then at the very same time they do that, what do they also scream about? Corporate greed. I've actually had a long theory about this. I've said this for years. I think a lot of this ESG stuff is cover for the fact that these companies make so much money and they pay their CEOs and their C-suite people a lot of it versus the people who are down in the mailroom or the or on the, the supply chain or whatever else. Uh, and this is a way they can distract the left because the left is easily distracted. So if you can go on there like every June Pride Month and light up everything in rainbows, you can keep them at bay. Like zombies, it's, you know, distracting them with something else or a great white shark. You know, you put pot roast in the thing and, you know, it's my wife's pot roast. She's not going to be happy about it, but nevertheless. And then you keep them at bay. Well, then they don't yell at you about how much money you're making and the fact that you pay your CEO like 25,000 times more than the, you know, the person who's uh, working in the mailroom or something. And I think for a while, a lot of companies saw that and thought, yeah, you know, if we just virtue signal, we can actually do that. But then something else happened. Then they had something called um, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive Playbook. It wasn't just anymore a way for companies to kind of deflect from the left. It soon became the law of the land with states turning around and saying, we will not use your company as part of our retirement portfolio for our pension plan if you don't have a good ESG score. So along with the United Nation and their Sustainable Development Goals and the WEF, the World Economic Forum, they started to actually rate this stuff. And they would give ESG scores. And so then what would happen is that you'd have uh, woke governors like uh, King Philip the Unaccountable, Phil Murphy of New Jersey and others. And they would turn around and they would say, um, based on your ESG score, we will decide whether or not to have your company as part of our state pension plan. Now, these companies want to be in pension plans. It's good for them to be there. 
They've also said this, by the way, about companies that have oil or guns or anything like that. But suddenly now there's a sea change. ESG efforts have been on the retreat recently. The financial firm Vanguard announced in 2022 it was withdrawing from the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said in June he was moving away from the term ESG. U.S. investors have been pulling their money out of ESG funds and corporations are mentioning ESG on earning calls far less frequently than at the peak in 2021. But is it over? It's never over. That's the problem. The problem is they got government policy here along the way, and the government policy is there. So during a series of House hearings over this past summer, the Republicans wanted to figure out a way that they could end this ESG crap once and for all. Like, for example, to give a compliment to Governor Ron DeSantis, he said Florida would not be using any companies that use ESG as part of its state pension plan. He did the opposite which is why he's a great governor and why if he gets out of the race and backs Trump, he'll have a smart political future for 2028. But Democrats invocation of the markets was just rhetorical. They are correct that some Republican responses to ESG, according to this piece, um, may have reduced market choices, but many Democrats have pursued an aggressive policy agenda in the opposite direction, as when they support, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission's mandatory climate disclosure rule. It is a strange free market phenomenon that requires a regulation that will, in the Wall Street Journal's words, raise the cost of businesses of complying with its overall disclosure rules to $10.2 billion from $3.9 billion where it is today. So you see, a lot of what corporate America realized was not only was ESG hurting their bottom line from the perspective of consumers, but because they got in bed with government, government turned around and said, oh, well, this sounds fun. But instead of making it um, optional, we're now going to make it all mandatory. And we're going to have all these new requirements for you, huh? Right? Let's do a big ESG hug. You're with us. We're with you. Kumbaya. Nor is the Securities and Exchange Commission alone. In November of 2022, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council, which sounds like something in Moscow, but it's here in America. I mean, Moscow, like during Stalin, proposed a rule requiring all significant government contractors to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions and their climate-related financial risk and set science-based targets to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So now ESG would now become a condition for people who make things like bombs, bullets, tanks, planes, things like that. As the U.S. Chamber of Commerce noted, that proposal would require thousands of employee hours, would saddle contractors with billions of dollars in added implementation and compliance costs. The government's acquisition costs would rise as a consequence, of course, and some contractors and companies in the supply chain would probably just drop out of the market entirely, which then, of course, means you have less competition, which means that you have less of demand, or I should say less of a supply of something, which then usually drives prices up. Meanwhile, there's a Department of Labor which under Joe Biden has moved to advance ESG objectives by amending the regulatory standards for private pension plans. President Joe Biden's first veto was against a Congressional Review Act to repeal this rule. This is where the Republicans again tried to fight back against woke idiot Democrat governors who said, we won't put your company into our state's pension plan unless it gets a really high ESG score. Gavin Newsom's a great example of that. 
And trust me, California has a lot of government workers. You want your company to be part of California's pension plan. And there's also the police and fire plan, and there's all kinds of plans, the teachers' plans, and all kinds of plans. So, so what happened is the Republicans got on board and said, hey, look, we got to stop this crap. We have to make this illegal. You should not be able to use an ESG score to determine whether or not a company should be part of your pension plan. You should only look at profitability. But the Biden administration, they're all about ESG. In fact, they adopted a comprehensive government-wide strategy for climate risk, which is one of the components of ESG, which includes both physical risks and transition risks. Now, you're asking yourself, what are transition risks? Well, they are attributed to potential future changes in government policy and consumer demand, which is inevitably highly speculative since no one can know much about consumer demand or government policies in the distant future. The government's using the implicit threat of future environmental policies to achieve those policies and the expected effects of those policies now. By the way, this whole uh, idea of the administrative state and all this power it has, which is something I'm going to continually talk about throughout the show today, is the big story of the day. Besides Iowa, it's brought to you by my buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria, VenariaDental.com, my dentist and the master of dental implants, VenariaDental.com. A little bit later in the show, I'm going to get into what's uh, two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court that could kill the administrative state because of something known as the Chevron deference doctrine. But turning back to this ESG thing, you see, the problem is you have this um, the, these two two worlds are colliding here. Companies thought by being ESG wokey that it would help them make money. They're wrong. But then when they got in bed with government, government turned around and said, ooh, this sounds like fun. Let's make it mandatory. And then you have another problem, of course, which is that you have all of these blue states and you've got countries around the world. And now it's become a thing where as companies try to pull back from it, there's actual consequences for them. Because when you get in bed with government, it never works out well. Government's a very selfish lover. It really is. The origins of the original 2004 United Nations report called for governments, pension fund managers, and corporations worldwide to begin incorporating ESG into their decisions. But those kind of global public-private coordination was necessary, the United Nations argued at the time, because only if all actors contribute to the integration of environmental, social, and government's issues, its investment decisions can improve significant outcomes. In other words, it's a lefty word salad that means nothing, but basically says, we, again, the world, economic forum, the WEF, the cabal of people that actually run the show here, want to control everything, and they'll decide for you what's good. That's where the G part of it comes in, or the S part of it, or even the E part. And now that you have companies now looking back and saying, um, can we get out of this, please? Can we walk back to just getting, uh, you know, making money? Now the government's turning around and saying, no, you can't. It has to be about your purpose. Make no mistake about it. When these uh, elite companies that are all about ESG hire all these woke college kids from elite universities who've been brainwashed into believing that all of this is what matters more than making money, if at first the goal of corporate America was to distract the left by being wokey-wokey, by having pride flags on their buildings and things like that, um, it's backfired in their face. Because now what started as something that was a distraction, ESG, look at us, our soap has purpose, to now when they want to just have their soap make money, 
the government's now going, not so fast. Come back to bed. It's a good reminder, though. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli, if you'd like to weigh in on the eve of the Iowa caucus. Listen, uh, when it comes to health care, I want you to trust me because you know I've had a lot of it done to me. <laughs> I mean, truly, from my surgery over the summer uh, to cure my diverticulitis, which it did. I mean, they removed uh, 18 inches of the old sigmoid colon there at Cooper University Hospital. Uh, baby Reagan was born there. And my entire family goes to Cooper because Cooper University Healthcare is South Jersey and the region's leading academic health care for a reason. Cooper is committed, compassionate, and complete, whether it's the MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper or the Cooper Neurological Institute, you will find the most dedicated physicians, doctors, nurses, providers, all on the front lines of leading academic research and science. And there's a Cooper near you. They are expanding every day. Beautiful new facility at the Morristown Mall and Cooper Urgent Care, which is there for all of your family's everyday urgent care needs. For example, when baby Reagan had her double ear infection a couple weeks ago, we took her to Cooper Urgent Care. She didn't have to wait long, and she was seen by a provider who's on the front lines at the region's number one level one trauma center. That's right. Those are the people that staff Cooper Urgent Care centers. So you're going to see the top of the line, the absolute best emergency room doctors and nurses at Cooper Urgent Care. So make an appointment today with over 75 specialties. There's something for your family just by calling 1-800-8-COOPER, 1-800-8-COOPER or cooperhealth.org and get an appointment today, cooperhealth.org. The Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. Uh, thanks to Johnny Z on Twitter. Who pointed out, and this is some breaking news, I guess, explosions have been reported near the U.S. consulate in Iraq, and Iran is taking credit for this. The Islamic State of Iran is claiming responsibility for, uh, for what just happened here. So I'll give you posted on that. But as of right now, that's that's the latest. Uh, no no deaths have been reported, just explosions. And the Iran Iranian Revolutionary Guard claims it was uh, targeting the headquarters of spies. So uh, there's a story from Fox News. Biden's Iran de-escalation strategy is backfiring as the regime is close to producing an atomic bomb. State Department spokesperson claims the Biden administration will ensure one way or another that Iran will never obtain a nuclear weapon. Of course, President Barack Obama may disagree with that, since that always seems to be his goal here. But nevertheless, um, that's where things stand. I, I, I do wonder, and the big story of the day today is the Iowa caucus. It's brought to you by our buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria, VenariaDental.com, V-A-N-A-R-I-A, VenariaDental.com. I do wonder how much um, all this is playing into Trump's hands. I, I mean that. I really do. So I, I think that there is a sense now... I don't think America wants another war. I, I really think we're all exhausted from the war on terror, quite frankly. And I think that there is a real sense that we have to get out of Ukraine. we got to stop this nonsense. And we don't want World War III. And, I, I, you know, from where I sit, I think that Nikki Haley has said all the wrong things on these issues. I really do. And i got to wonder, you know, as we head into, uh, into Iowa tonight, how much that plays into things. I mean, Nikki Haley's adamant support, her steadfast support of Ukraine, in my opinion, is one of the things that is 
why the establishment's behind Nikki, but it's also why you had Senator Rand Paul the other day come out and say, you know, here's my new site, nevernikki.net. And no conservative or libertarian should back her. That's what Senator Rand Paul said. So I, I, I got I got to keep thinking to myself, you know, how, how much does all this help? And I think it helps Trump a lot because he didn't start any new wars. I think that matters. I really do. I think a lot of that matters. And we'll see. And then the question is, you know, they say DeSantis is going to stay through South Carolina. I, I, I don't I don't believe that. In my opinion, I, I don't believe that. Um, I'm being called out now for putting mayo on a burger. That's outrageous. I, my I, buddy Mike he, said mayo on a burger, and I thought you were a patriot. It's his patriotic. Mayonnaise is as American as it gets. It, isn't it really it? is. I, I'm 100% with you there. It's very, that's very much an American thing. Thank you. I mean, who invented mayo? Mr. Mayo, right? Hellman himself, I guess. Hellman did himself? I, I, I would assume. I don't know any other mayo brands that they can name, you know, name recognition with that, like that. I got to I got to figure this out now. Who who invented mayonnaise? I know that the uh, oh I got a, a John Kerry story. He may be stepping down as a special climate uh, envoy. Who? But his uh, wife Teresa Hines Kerry um, Hines makes mayo, oh. but not the best. No, no. Actually, Duke's mayonnaise is really good. By the mm. way, the Duke's uh, mayo. Oh, bowl. it might be French. I don't know. Uh, mayonnaise was invented in 1756 by the chef of the French nobleman and soldier Duke de Richelieu as celebration food to serve after a great victory in battle. But, but, but in the 1750s, France was our best friend, and. They helped us a lot in the American Revolution. And Thomas Jefferson, of course, was the ambassador to France and loved France and died in debt because he loved French wine so much (laughs) and tried to grow it in Virginia and came really, really close, by the way, to really achieving wine that they've since picked up and they've done a great job. But he was really close. So I would say, um, yes, maybe maybe it's French, but considering it was invented in the 1750s when they were like our BFFs, I feel it's American. Yeah, I'll take it. Right? I bet you Thomas Jefferson loved mayo. I bet they don't even like it in, over in France anymore. Yeah, they're probably not, right? It's probably too... I'm going to Google something nobody's ever Googled before in the history of life. Oh, boy. Thomas Jefferson mayonnaise. <laughs> and there's a story that comes out from the Tuscaloosa News. See the amazing things you learned on this show? That uh, yes, not only did Thomas Jefferson like mayonnaise, he made it himself. Oh. He loved he loved he loved France. He loved French food, and um, he he also don't forget the the Louisiana Purchase. Some people think that part of the reason why Jefferson bought Louisiana, and even though he struggled with this, whether or not this was in fact constitutional or not for the president to do or the United States to do, as a matter of fact, some people do believe it was because of New Orleans and the fact that it was the center of fine French cuisine. <laughs> Nola for the win, right there, huh? But among Jefferson's luggage were a notebook of recipes written by his own hand, grapevines for a vineyard at Monticello near Charlottesville, Virginia, and several ancient cookbooks in French and Latin. As Secretary of State, he once sent a diplomatic courier to Naples, Italy, to learn to make macaroni and, if possible, to find the proper mold. Jefferson later introduced Neapolitan pasta baked with cheese and butter to America. I really do love this man. Spaghetti wasn't his only culinary first. He was the first to serve French fries with steak, steak frites. 
Uh, the first to use vanilla as flavoring and one of the first to serve ice cream at state banquets, according to a uh, another book. I'm sure that he was not fond of vanilla. It seems to, well, vanilla. The president's menus and guest lists were extraordinary, according to historians, but they had detractors. Thomas Paine, another one of the founding fathers, found Jefferson's taste for foreign food and wine almost subversive. I'm sorry, you know, I'm a big fan of Thomas Paine, but I got to stand with Thomas Jefferson on this. Jefferson um, also trained the cook staff at his house in Monticello to uh, serve French food. How about that? I'm sorry. It sounds like TJ had it down. TJ knew what he was doing. Yeah, he absolutely knew what he was doing. He's like, this is good. I'm not eating whatever we have over here. I'm only going to improve it. Only eight recipes in Jefferson's own hand have survived, according to Thomas Jefferson's cookbook. The French recipe for squab in compote, simmered with onion, carrots, bacon, mushrooms, and Madeira wine, was found in Jefferson's records at his home. He seldom went in the kitchen himself, but he directed the cooking education of his granddaughters and selected the daily dinner menu, both in Washington and in Virginia. And, um, yes, one of the recipes included his own recipe for mayonnaise. So there you go, Mike. And speaking of pine nuts, because everything comes back to something that the Zioli Army tweeted out earlier in the show, Thomas Jefferson is said to have been fond of pilo with pistachios and pine nuts. And while none of these recipes is from Thomas Jefferson's files or journals, they are authentic in the spirit of 18th century Virginia, Washington area. All will contribute to an Independence Day celebration. So we talked about pine nuts, whether or not you put pinoli nuts in meatballs. I bet you Thomas Jefferson would have liked that. Boom. Bringing it right back to Twitter. See that? Anyway. Mayonnaise is delicious. And it belongs on a burger. It does. I agree. Checking in on social media, Jane Coffey says, Rich, many historians argue that mayonnaise was invented in the 1800s. Historians trace the earliest footprints of mayonnaise to Egyptians and Romans who used a combination of olive oil and egg as a dietary supplement. However, French chefs are credited. Sid says, I thought you'd be a Miracle Whip guy. Hey, shut up, Sid. Uh, Let's see. Headmaster543 says, I'm more of a mustard than mayo guy. Mayo's a bit slimy for me. I, like, so I don't I, mustard. I, the mayo mustard ketchup combo on a burger is pretty good sometimes. Yeah, that's you know what what I mean? oh, I put all that on my burger. Some pickles, <clears throat> yeah. some onion. Yeah, I'm all I'm all for it. Uh, Paul D Bartolo on Twitter says, "Rich, if you're not putting this on your burger, you're not doing it right." It's Paul's special relish from Rocky Point, North Carolina. That sounds great. I have to ask um, <clears throat> our buddy. Her buddy Paul, he's got Captain, Captain Paul's dogs. I'll have to ask him what he puts on uh, his burgers because he's kind of a foodie. Yeah, Captain, Cap, if you're listening, Captain, Captain Paul's dogs, let me know what you put on your his, his veteran-owned uh, dog stand. I want to know what he puts on a burger. You know what I like to put on a burger? Pangolin. Sometimes raccoon dog aioli. Come on, Henry, get with me. The <laughs> Wuhan burger is delicious. Can't say that I've had it. Well, you're it's, missing out. What can so, I tell you? Sounds very appetizing. <clears throat> and only I can bring mayonnaise back to one of the founding fathers. <laughs> yeah. It's what I do. Hey, there's, it's there's what mayo I do. and aioli, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> obviously. A little raccoon, little mayo. You got yourself a nice sauce. You got, you, you got yourself a stew. 
Uh, here is a top Biden surrogate, uh, Malcolm Kenyatta, decrying deplorable voter integrity laws in Republican-led states. And um, this is uh, Pennsylvania State Rep Malcolm Kenyatta on CNN over the weekend. Cut number six. You know, we've seen a, a powerful strategy from activists, organizers, and lawyers on the ground in these states, um, even in even in the face of these you know deplorable uh, voter integrity laws, as they're often called. Uh, he also went on to fearmonger a little bit more, this time saying he's not being hyperbolic. Whenever somebody says they're not being hyperbolic, you know that they're being hyperbolic. Cut number seven. So much of what Dr. King fought for, this idea that every single person, no matter who they are, who they look like, where they're from, could participate in their democracy, that's that's on the line. And tomorrow marks the beginning of a critical election where I don't think I'm being hyperbolic by saying this next election is about whether or not we can have elections in this country as we know it. <laughs> that's funny. That's cute. Um, that's, that is adorable, by the way, whether or not we'll actually have elections or not. That's what the next election's about, whether or not we'll have elections. Didn't he face corruption charges in Philly? Yes. Yeah, it's the same guy? Okay. I thought I knew the name. Yeah, I mean, it's Philly, right? You know. That's like saying, didn't eat lunch in Philly. Uh, Here's a guy who's also from a state of corruption, Illinois. This is Governor J.B. Pritzker complaining about Texas, who keeps sending illegal aliens to Illinois. This is one of those classic examples of, I told you, drop in anytime you want. And then the neighbor shows up and you go, oh, this is awkward. I have nothing prepared. I have no meatballs with pinoli nuts in them. This is weird. Cut number 10. Not enough has been done. There's no doubt about that. And I think that the president needs to do more. The Congress needs to do more. Uh, cities out here that are the target of this political game that Governor Abbott is playing uh, are suffering. And here in Illinois, it's minus 29 degrees uh, outside with the wind chill. Uh, we have migrants that arrive from Texas virtually every day uh, hundreds and uh, we don't have places to put them we don't have enough shelter space here there are plenty of other cities where you know if he's going to send people they could be sent but no he's choosing only democratic states democratic cities oh poor baby well you wanted him you said you wanted sanctuary for them so here you go you got it why don't you maybe be careful what you ask for i'm just saying just throwing it out there uh here is a uh, another clip for you this is now the president speaking to reporters before boarding marine one um what you call the crisis at the southern border a crisis cut eight mr president would you call the situation on the southern border a crisis no, but I would say with a react. I, I've been pushing them, my Republican colleagues, since I got in office. I think we have to make major changes in the border. I'm pushing them. I'm prepared to make significant alterations in the border. The negotiations going on for the last five weeks. I'm hoping we'll get there. Uh, no, it's not a crisis. Everything's fine, even though the governor of Illinois is screaming about how many illegal immigrants are coming to your state. So there's two reasons why, by the way. Um, the first reason is they want open borders because they want all the red states like Texas to become blue. But the second reason why they want open borders is because they hate America and they believe that, that America has to atone for all the horrible, angry things we did throughout the world. That's number two. Number three, of course, is because... They want to use illegal immigrants for the apportionment of congressional districts. I told you that Congressman Thomas Massey has an amendment to the United States Constitution, which would say, as was the intention of the founders and the framers of the Constitution, you can only count the seats in the House of Representatives based on the population of U.S. citizens, not based on everybody who lives in the district, because they're basing it on illegal immigrants. 
And there was a New York congresswoman last week who actually admitted that. Said, look, I need more illegal immigrants here. I need more migrants here, she's called them, because I, I got to keep my district. There's only 435 seats in the House. It's a finite number. And so you got to spread that out throughout the country. And what they want to do is flood the zone. So you, you force Texas to become blue, but at the same time, you flood the zone by having more illegal immigrants go to blue states. So when you hear these governors protest too much, um, realize that they're kind of phony about it because eventually they're going to either gain a congressional seat or they won't lose a congressional seat because all those people are going to be counted towards the apportionment of House seats in the 2020, 2030 census. So just keep that in mind when you listen to these people. And this guy is my hero. This is a um, angry New York City driver. They had one of their wacky pro-Palestine uh, stunts the other day where these people shut down traffic. And to, to this day, I still don't understand how you think you're winning over hearts and minds by making people late shutting down roads for hours and hours at a time in some cases. I don't know how anybody thinks, you know what, I hate your guts. I My kids are home by themselves and I'm missing dinner or worse, maybe I've got, you know. When Chris Christie, when Bridgegate happened, I remember they accused Chris Christie of everything from somebody had died because they couldn't get an ambulance to him in time. They accused him of murder for that. There were all kinds of people who had missed doctor's appointments and the, and the corporate media was camped out in Fort Lee, of course, talking about how many people People might have had their health destroyed because of Bridgegate. But when these people shut down roads, whether it's in Philly or New York, it's like no big freaking deal. And we've talked about this. And Henry, and you've said this too. When they make you late, you hate them no matter what their cause is. You hate their guts, right? Yep, absolutely. 100% of the time. Even if you agreed with them five minutes ago, now you hate them. Yes. Yeah, I, I, never, I never understand why they do that. Nobody ever turns around and goes, oh, you made me late. I lost my job. I love your cause. Sign me up. Yeah, you're not galvanizing anybody. So this guy got out of his car the other day and uh, proceeded to slap a couple people. And I'm, I'm sorry. In my opinion, they had it coming. I don't, I don't feel bad for them whatsoever. Uh, they ultimately did get out of the way for him, by the way. Here's an angry, city, angry New York City driver, cut 15. run him over run him over like if that guy had actually run those people over with his car they would have been cheering him on that's beautiful that guy's my hero and by the way he puts mayo on a burger oh does he now yeah they had an interview with him true american hero mm-hmm. <laughs> true american hero uh let's see I'm trying to think now in terms of um 
how uh, tonight's going to go. Not in Iowa. I don't care. The Eagles. I'm saying it's going to be a rock fight. And between two guys who have no arms and whoever just lands a good strike is going to win. And I just don't think the Eagles have any rocks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just don't. So a low-scoring game. I'll say like 16-14 they lose on like a last-second field goal. Yeah. That's, that's where right. I'm thinking. You're not very optimistic. No. This is the most optimistic I've been all week, too. So... <laughs> It's Damn yeah, it's pretty it's pretty uh sad. I, I just don't I don't have a faith that they came up with anything in that echo chamber of theirs in the coaching room. Um George on Twitter said, Rich, in the seventeen fifties we were fighting the French and Indian War against France. George Washington took part. Actually in the seventeen fifties we were British. We weren't actually we were British. So we didn't, but, but the French philosophers influenced our thinking about things, but we didn't really have a choice because we were British in the 1750s, but I digress. Um, they, we did like Mayo regardless, regardless of that. We did. Who was the French uh, philosopher we liked? Was uh, it, um, the, the one with the law or which one was that? Duverger. Oh, Duverger's law. Yeah. With the two party thing. Now, who who was the one uh, that influenced Jefferson? What was his name? Man, Locke, I... something or other like that. John Locke. Yeah, like. Well, oh, he was English. He was the who was the French was one? Who was the French one? I don't know. Who was Matt, the French this is philosopher? Some snooty that Matt would know. Yeah, you know, it's it's going to come to me now, and I'm going to be mad because I'm going to forget. Um, was it? Um, oh, Clouseau. I think it was. Uh, it was uh, uh, Clouseau. <laughs> Like the Pink Panther? <laughs> yeah, like the Pink Panther. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know any of these. Foucault? Um, Jean-Jacques Clouseau, I think. And he tried to find the Pink Panther all the time. He was a, wore a big uh, trench coat. <laughs> Jean, Jean-Jacques Clouseau. Was it Voltaire? Uh, could have been Voltaire. Could have been Rousseau. I don't know any of these names. Oh, well. Anyway, um, all right, 855-839-1210 if you want to weigh in. Fourth and final hour is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, by the way. Just kidding. Uh, Before I get like a million tweets. Um, So uh, six o'clock hour, the Supreme Court has a chance to overturn one of the worst decisions ever, and that is the Chevron deference doctrine. We'll talk about that straight ahead. Plus my preview of Iowa. What does it all mean for Governor Ron DeSantis? Uh, We'll be right back. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app.